A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Yehuda Geberer with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is actually a funny dedication this time, so I'm just reading off what the sponsor submitted. It is dedicated by a very patient listener in honor of all the patient listeners of Jewish History Soundbites. So, uh, you know, um, big shout out to all the patient listeners out there of Jewish History Soundbites. A little more patience before we get to today's episode because I have um, just a few things to share. First of all, some feedback. Um, About a month or two ago, we had a very, very popular episode on the Chassam Seifer and his family. And a very old and good friend of mine, who's quite knowledgeable as well, he related to me that he was at the kever of the Chassam Seifer in Bratislava 40 years ago, under the, when it was still, uh, you know, a communist uh, uh, government, of course. And he described how it was basically an iron grating in the floor, and there was a, an, an elderly woman who who came to open it, and you walk down this tight and narrow staircase to the kever. So I uh, reflected about how much more accommodating it is today, despite the fact that it's uh, still underground. Uh, that alone is pretty cool, but there's a sequel to the story uh, as well. From, from that trip to Bratislava, then 40 years ago, he went continued to Israel. And there in Israel, in Katamon, in Yerushalayim, he meets a Holocaust survivor from Bratislava who he shares with and he tells him, you know, he was just by the Chassam Seifer's cover and this survivor tells him, oh, I was among those who built that highway above the cover and, and you know, the slave labor and during the war and he was actually involved in bribing the Slovakian officials uh, in order to save the cover and he even had pictures from the... Uh, from the building of the highway to prove it. So to have met someone who was actually there at the time and was involved in it is pretty uh, pretty amazing. Um, as far as the summer schedule of Jewish History Soundbites is concerned, there's some new series brewing, lots of exciting stuff. It's not just going to be some great episodes. What I'm going to do is soon have um, series uh, going in-depth um, in, in uh, different topics, which should be a lot of fun as well. 
So we're getting back on track. I appreciate your patience, but I guarantee you that it'll be worth it, and we will have some uh, uh, lots of great content coming up. Also, um, towards the end of July, uh, still closing the exact dates, but the last week of July, I plan on being in the United States in the New York area. You know, some people refer to it as the tri-state area, but when religious Jews say the tri-state area, they really mean from the Catskills to Lakewood. Pretty much that's that's about it, everything in between. I don't know if they actually mean the tri-state area. But in any event, I'll be over there, so I'll be available for speeches, lectures, probably going to have a couple of great cemetery tours. Uh, I'll announce more details as things go along, but I wanted to give a heads up if your shul is interested, if you if you want to organize a cemetery tour, have a lecture or a speech or or um, something along those lines um, in the during that week. Um, it's you know it's a week before Tisha B'av, Shabbos Chazayin. Uh, it's during the three weeks. It's that time of year when people are suddenly interested in Jewish history, since many view Jewish history as is depressing. You know, it either involves graves or or death or Holocaust at some level. So then everyone is very excited to hear a lecture or do see some cemeteries. The rest of the year, you, you know, most people are more inclined to invite people like uh, Modi or something to speak. But this time of year, Yehuda Geber can probably be invited. So be in touch, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for that as well. Now we finally get to the topic of today. And it is a very fascinating story of Machzike Hadas the story of the first Orthodox political party in Jewish history, the, the, which its name was the Machziki Hadas. It was 19th century Galicia, centered in the Lvov area, then known by its German name, Lemberg. Today that's in western Ukraine, um, or may even be Russia by now, who knows. Um, so that would be, then it would be eastern Galicia, and it was founded by the Rebbe, the Belzerov, Rabbi Yeshua Reikeach, um, the Mitlerov, they referred to him, the second Belzerov, the son of the Sar Shalom, and also together with Rabbi Shimon Seifer, the rabbi of Krakow, which is Western Galicia, and the son of the Chassam Seifer, who I mentioned in that episode about his family and many other Orthodox Jewish activists, rabbis and activists and, 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 and businessmen and all kinds of things. So, just to delve into the background a little bit, um, the fact that the Orthodox community embraced politics and uh, political parties shows how Orthodoxy, traditional Judaism, in the modern era, is a product of modernity, is in essence a modern movement. I've mentioned this in episodes previously. I've even got gotten some uh, emails questioning that assertion, um, but I'm happy to back it up. Um, and orthodoxy is a modern movement because it's a product of its confrontation with modernity, with the challenges of modernity, and, the, and it uses the tools of modernity to preserve tradition. So the paradox is, is that a traditional society, a very conservative society, a society which prides itself in Messiah and tradition in not changing, is actually a modern movement because the the structures, the communal structures, the religious structures, even halachic structures, parameters, not not uh, the very act of 
of observing Shabbos is, of course, a constant, and that pretty much is immutable and unchanging in a traditional Jewish community, but it's the form and it's the structures of, of, of everything about it, which uh, is a reaction to modernity and a reaction to those challenges that that we can definitely assert that it's a modern movement. And political parties and its embracing of politics is one of the best examples, perhaps, of it. It's using the tools of modernity to confront the challenges and to restructure itself in reaction to what's going on around it. It's not stagnant. It's very dynamic. It's very active and proactive in preserving its place in the Jewish community and Jewish history by embracing elements of of the modern world, such as politics and political parties. So, and that takes place in Galicia. And that, I, I think, is perhaps you know, might be the most compelling uh, part of the story is its geographical context. Um, because Galicia has a unique, unique place in the Jewish world in the 19th century specifically. And as a result, it plays an, a very important role in modern Jewish history. And I'll explain why. We usually think, we tend to think of European Jewry as East and West, uh, divided into this imaginary line of East and West, where Western European Jewish communities is small Jewish population, very small minorities in their towns and cities, much more modern, much emancipated, right? This, uh, the French Revolution, you know, uh, is the, is, leads to many other countries over the course of the 19th century emancipating their Jewish populations. So that's the stereotype, which is, is, is uh, you know, very accurate to a certain extent um, of Western European Jewry. And on the other hand, we have Eastern European Jewry, which is a very um, demographically, you know, large Jewish population. Its numbers are immense, very densely Jewish. It's not just large numbers, but it's very dense. Uh, you have towns and mid-sized towns and cities where you have an absolute majority of Jews or a very, very large minority. Um, and they are less, These they're living in countries which are less economically and technologically developed. And this is the biggest point, they're not emancipated. And principally we're talking about Tsarist Russia, I want to refer to that, because it's the largest Jewish community in the world, five million Jews in the 19th century, towards the end of the 19th century, and they do not have emancipation, they don't have equal rights, they don't have citizenship. So that's a very big distinction between East and West. And while that distinction as a whole holds true for the 19th century, Galicia is the anomaly in that equation. Because on one hand, it's geographically, culturally, religiously, and most importantly, demographically, fits the profile of Eastern European Jewish life. It's a very dense Jewish population, very traditional Hasidic Jewish population. And on the other hand, it's formerly Poland, Galicia, but since the partitions of Poland at the end of the 18th century, it finds itself in the Habsburg Austrian, later the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they, in, our, in other words, they're in a Western European Empire, which is officially an enlightened absolutism uh, form of government. And in 1867, they grant emancipation, equal rights to the Jews of the the Habsburgs of the Austrian Empire. 
This is two decades after the 1848 revolutions, and it's quite some time after other countries did so. But what's important for our story, in the context of our story, is that it was exactly 50 years prior to Russia granting emancipation to its Jewish population, which only took place in 1917 during the time of the Russian Revolution. So you have a half a century of where where Galicia, where not just Galicia, all Jews of the Austrian Empire receive emancipation, and the Jews of Russia do not yet have it. Well, the the so Russia, when they finally give it in 1917, they're one of the last countries in the world to do so. So Russia definitely lags behind. They weren't the last, by the way. Romania was the last country in the world to give Jews, Grand Jews emancipation in 1923. If you really want to get technical, though, the Nuremberg Laws in Nazi Germany in 1935 reversed emancipation by stripping Jews of its citizenship. So it actually had to be new legislation passed by West Germany in the 1940s to officially grant emancipation once again to the Jews of Germany, whoever was left there in the late 1940s, not many. Um, but it's a, it just a, an interesting tidbit um, that that West Germany gives emancipation, gives citizenship to Jews in Germany in the late 1940s and uh, you know reinstates their, their citizenship that had been taken from them by the Nazis. But that's that's a you know side issue. Either way, so getting back to this, in 1867, the Jews of Austria receive emancipation, and only 1917 do the Jews of Russia. So a half a century, the Jews under the Habsburgs enjoy the benefits and reap the fruits of emancipation, while those in Russia do not. This is especially intriguing when comparing the Jews of Galicia, which in so many ways are similar in profile to Russian Jewry, uh, and yet they have emancipated. It's like we're isolating the variable. We're almost like we're conducting a experiment. This is a, a, a sociologist's uh, dream because the sociologists and the historians don't have the luxury that chemists and physicists do of of experimenting in a lab and by creating the variables and 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 isolating those variables themselves. We can't do that with human populations. But when accidents of history like this take place, it's a it's an amazing study because now you can isolate the variable because here you have two Jewish populations which in many ways are quite similar and yet one receives emancipation and one does not and how does that affect their development culturally, religiously, economically and in so many other ways and politically. Um, so Galicia is the exception to a lot of rules uh, as a result. Um, by the way, even with immigration. Uh, we tend to blame the great immigration on pogroms in Russia, right? If you ask anyone, why did two and a half million Jews leave uh, Russia in the, uh, in the last decades of the 19th century up until World War I and immediately after? So they'll say because there are loads of pogroms. That's what many people say. But here's a good question. It's a, you throw a little curveball here. In Galicia, there were no pogroms. And the great immigration commenced in Galicia at the same time. They, Jews are leaving Galicia in droves. So what was it? It was economic. That's why they're leaving Galicia. You can't blame it on pogroms. So then we have to rethink why Russian Jews left. Was it really because of pogroms, or perhaps it was economic as well? And the conclusion that most historians have today is that it was primarily economic, and pogroms per, was a much more minor role. But I digress again. 
let's go back to the politics and to the Mechziki Hadas. As a result of this unique status of Galicia, the Orthodox community there had enough critical mass, demographics-wise, to utilize their emancipation and to do what Russian Jewry could only dream of and what they would only be able to do in the interwar period, primarily in Poland, and, uh, and what Orthodoxy in other countries in Western Europe could not do either because they were, too new, they were too numerically insignificant to even consider, and that is to politically organize. So why weren't the Orthodox Jews in Western Europe politically organizing? Because they were numerically insignificant. Why weren't the Jews in Eastern Europe in Russia politically organizing? Because they didn't have emancipation. So they weren't illegally allowed to do anything. The czars wouldn't let them. It's not that the czars wouldn't let them, they didn't allow anyone, right? It's not that the Jews aren't that unique in Russia in that regard. The, the, uh, no one really has equal rights. It's an autocracy. The czar is a, what we would call a dictator. So, so no one can politically organize in Russia. So the Galicia, traditional Jewish community, has this unique opportunity that no one else has. The Galician Jewry in the second half of the 19th century, it's likely that the majority were still Orthodox traditional or whatever you want to call it, likely, we don't have exact numbers, but it's, it's likely that there's an absolute majority or at least very, very significant numbers uh, who are still orthodox, overwhelmingly Hasidic, by the way, too. So we have Rabbi Yeshua of Belz, Rabbi Shia of Belz, the Mittlerov, uh, the second Belzer Rebbe. He succeeded his father, uh, who I mentioned before, the Sar Shalom, in 1855, despite the fact that he was the youngest a child, and he's a very dominant leader, of course, of Bells itself, but all in Galicia in general, a very powerful leader, um, and uh, he, he for, for for four decades, uh, towards in the 1890s, he passes away, and then on the other side you have Reb Shimon Seifer, um, who I mentioned recently in the family of the Chassam Seifer episode, again, very prominent rabbinical leader, and they are they and many other rabbinical leaders and other communal activists at the time are looking around at the world of the Habsburg Empire, and they're seeing modernity, they're seeing emancipation, technology, urbanization, educational reform, economic changes, and the different responses that the Jewish community is developing, such as reform, such as Haskalah, such as nationalism is not quite yet, but it's around the corner, and, and they say these challenges are posing a threat and challenge to traditional Judaism. We need to utilize the opportunities of modernity, specifically politics and media, and the birth of Mechziki Hadas and its accompanying newspaper is the result. Um, the one who has written regarding this topic quite extensively is, is, uh, is all, things, all things Galicia, but in this as well, is a, um, a Dr. Rachel Menekin, um, and she has some great stuff on it. Others, too, there's quite a bit written about this because it's such an uh, interesting, uh, uh, interesting story. It's founded, the Mahziki Adas organization is founded in 1878 with the founding convention, again, a public convention in Lvov, uh, which, again, is, is then Lemberg, in 1879. The first few years of its existence, the first five, six, seven, maybe ten years of its existence were its best, but it did have some nominal influence that continued until World War I, 
when it uh, ultimately collapsed and the newspapers shut down as well and most of Jewish life in World War I wreaked havoc on it in many ways. Um, I had a series on that back uh, quite a bit of time ago. Um, there were attempts to resurrect it in the interwar period, most notably at an event in 1928, again in Lvov, which is now in the Second Polish Republic, an independent Poland. Um, and, and Lvov would always be the center of the movement. Um, when it was Lemberg, when it was Lvov, it didn't make a difference. It was a real political party with a political agenda and a platform with goals which, with, which ran on, on, uh, on a ticket in the election that tried to get representatives sent to the Austrian parliament and succeeded in doing so um, at least once. Rip Shimon Seifer himself, um, who's the president of Machziki Hadas, he's appointed by this convention as the president of Machziki Hadas, and he's the official representative of it in the Austrian parliament. It used propaganda, like any political party, it had its own newspaper like the political parties of its day. It was published every other week. It was bi-monthly. And then, actually, a few years later, it even started to be weekly. It didn't get a license to be weekly, so what are they going to do? So they had a very simple solution. Uh, two weeks a month, it was called Machziki Hadas, and two weeks a month, a different, completely different newspaper called Koil Machziki Hadas was printed, and, uh, and it's two different newspapers. Each newspaper had a permission to be printed bi-monthly, and therefore became weekly. Um, so the Galicianers figured things out already then. So this is completely revolutionary in the Orthodox world, especially for a place so conservative such as Galicia, and especially a place so conservative as Bells, Rabbi Shila of Bells, the Bells Hasidus, the Bells dynasty, the Bells Rav, were the most conservative in all of Galicia. In fact, it's a, an amazing story, like the, an Oilam Hafuch, just, you know, just so, just the opposite of what we would imagine, is that the Svasemis, who's the Rebbe of Ger in Poland, um, he receives a copy of the Machziki Hadas newspaper at the Belzerov's behest. In other words, Rabbi of Belz asked the Svasemis to get a newspaper because he wanted it to be spread even as far as Poland, far away in Poland. But then the Svasemis allegedly, allegedly, disposed of it because he didn't want to have a newspaper in his house. Any newspaper, even an Orthodox one, even one that the Belzerov, uh, you know, uh, supported. So here you have a wild instance where a Hasidic Rebbe in Poland, which was generally more liberal, taking a more stringent stance on Orthodoxy than the than the Galicia uh, uh, Rebbe, who is usually the one who's more conservative. So it's a, a world of opposites, but that's what happens when you need to play politics. And the reason it was founded was to oppose a Maskilic uh, party called Shoimer Yisrael, which had been founded a decade earlier in 1867. And ironically, that party it was a Jewish party, Shemer Yisrael. Shemer is to preserve the Jewish people because they were opposed to assimilation. They saw that Jews in Galicia were starting to assimilate. They were using the liberalism of the Austrian Empire and the changes that were sweeping the Austrian Empire to completely assimilate. And the Maskilim, of course, were opposed to assimilation, to remain Jewish with a new Jewish identity, to incorporate the uh, 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 values of the modern world into Jewish society, but definitely opposed to assimilation. So here you have this 
you know, they're opposed to assimilation, so they found a party, but yet they have these maskilic tendencies of, uh, you know, implementing changes in Jewish life and acceptance of the outside world in traditional Jewish society, and the Orthodox community sees that as a threat. So to oppose them, they found the Machziki Hadas. The big question that they grappled with at the 1882 convention, this became a very, very divisive topic at the 1882 convention in Lvov, and even caused many Rabbanim in Galicia to resign from Machziki Hadas as a result. And, and also through the early years, through the first decade of its existence, the big question on the table, on the agenda, the burning issue of the day, was the separation of the community's proposal. Do we separate, do we resign, do we, uh, do we renounce membership of the mainstream Jewish community once it has been taken over by non-traditional elements, by non-Orthodox elements? And do we establish independent Orthodox communities? Is That is the big question of the day. And of course their model is Hungary. You know, of course, Rishab Shachar Hirsch did the same thing in Frankfurt, but but the model is Hungary, the Tailung in Hungary that the students of the Chassam Sefer had just recently, in the 1860s, just a few years earlier, had started to implement across Hungary. The question was, would that work for Galicia? It did not happen, ultimately. There was opposition, a lot of opposition from, main, from some of the leading rabbis and rabbis in Galicia, and it did not was not implemented in Galicia. So it's, that's, that's, again, another topic. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Why is something that was considered imperative in Hungary was uh, taken down, was basically shot down off the agenda in Galicia? Why is this separation of the community's proposal um, so opposed in Galicia and is so supported in Hungary? Although hundreds of communities, hundreds of chapters of Mechziki Hadas are established and, and hundreds of communities across Galicia associate themselves with Mahziki Adas. They, they enjoyed widespread support among the Orthodox of Galicia. Um, tens of thousands of, of card-carrying members of Mahziki Adas in its prime. Um, and the momentous event of this movement was, of course, the gathering in Lvov of 1882 that I mentioned before, this conference, this convention, whatever it was. One of the major players was uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Arenstein, who was the rabbi of Lvov after the passing of Rabbi of Shol, Natan's son, the Shailom Eishev. And uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Arenstein, along with his son-in-law, Rabbi Yalei Breide, was another ra- leading rabbi in Paisik and Lvov. And these two were uh, leaders initially in the Mechziki Hadas as well. It enjoyed a wide support of Galicia rabbis, Hasidic rabbis, wealthy businessmen, community leaders, uh, activists, and the traditional masses. Um, ironically, and this is how popular Machziki Hadas was, the Sadiger and Chartkev rabbis, who both lived in Galicia at the time, supported Machziki Hadas, Hadas, as well as the children of the Divrei Chaim of Sans, and, and, and the grandchildren of Shleim of Babov, who was a grandchild, the first Babov Rebbe. They all supported it. Now, to get Sadiger and Sans at that time, with their bitter dispute so recently in the public memory, uh, to be to get them to agree on something is is, is quite astounding. That means that Machzik Yadas was really really uh, unifying in its uh, in its approach and unifying in its goals. That traditional Jewry Orthodoxy, no matter what their differences are internally, need to put those differences aside to be able to confront the challenges on the outside. Um, 
so it, like I said, they send Reb Shimon Seifer to the Austrian parliament. He's the first Orthodox representative in a national parliament in Jewish history, especially of an Orthodox political party. So it's nothing short of revolutionary. Reb Shimon Seifer does something else which foreshadows future events. He sides in parliament with the, the, um, the conservative Poles, in other words, the Poles who were part of the Polish aristocracy, seeking Polish independence and Polish autonomy uh, in Galicia, of course. So, so he sides with them on a host of issues, whereas most uh, Jewish representatives in the Austrian parliament sided with the liberals because they wanted more rights, more equal rights for the Jews, um, more freedom for the Jews. And here you have the Orthodox representative siding not just with a conservative element, but the conservative Poles, not even the Austrians, which is an interesting point. He passed away in 1883, and that really weakened the movement. Um, Reb Shimon Seifer was the dominant force at this time in the movement, and even though the Rebbe, the Rebbe was still alive, but the fact that Reb Shimon Seifer was the president of the movement and um, its representative of the party in the parliament, it severely weakened it. He succeeded by his nephew, a son of the Ksav Seifer, Yitzchak Leib Seifer. Upon his passing in the early 1900s, he succeeded by his son, Rabbi Ram Chaim David Seifer. So the Einik Lachudach Sam Seifer are the rulers in Galicia and the Mechsiki Hadas as well, together with Bells. Um, this alliance with the political right of Poland is very unique. Uh, like I said, because most Jewish political parties align with the liberal left, and that kind of somewhat foreshadowed another orthodox trend in politics in interwar Poland. Um, the 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 uh, Agudas Yisrael um, sides with um, with the uh, with the uh, the uh, the conservatives in the in the parliament. The uh, Pilsudski and his some much less his successors are more anti-Semitic, but that's another story. And uh, and then in Israel, um, in modern day Israel, the Orthodox uh, parties tend to be more on the right, and to a certain extent, that's true in the United States as well. Even though there's no formal Orthodox political parties, um, the newspaper, the Marziki Das, the Koyl Marziki Das, initially it reported religious news and events in the Lvov area, primarily in the Lvov city. It was quite limited in its scope. Eventually, it reported um, um, news from all over Galicia and to a certain extent, the Jewish world uh, all over. It contained polemics against um, modernist trends and movements and personalities and all kinds of things like that. There were stories, there was occasional poetry. For instance, uh, for Purim, I had a couple of times, they also had an honor of a Habsburg royal wedding. Again, it's a fascinating thing. In the religious newspaper, which was in Hebrew and Yiddish, they published a poem in honor of Franz Josef's child or grandchild or who knows what, who got married. So they published a poem in the Machziki Hadas in that honor. Uh, they sometimes copied historical articles from the German language Orthodox newspaper Der Israelit, from Thompson Fall Hirsch in Frankfurt. Um, so they, they would just copy that from the German into Hebrew or Yiddish and publish that occasionally as well. It was only several pages long. Um, like I said, bi-monthly, later as a weekly. It played an important role. Um, it was one of the early Orthodox newspapers, though it was not the first. I mentioned their Israelit in uh, Frankfurt was an early one, Halavanite, which is a fascinating story um, in Eastern Europe. 
um, and in, 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 it was another one. There's a couple of others also that preceded it. The development of Jewish newspapers in the 19th century is general. It's a great subject, which we'll definitely need to explore on its own merits. So if we would summarize this experiment, it was not a wildly successful experiment because it did uh, fade and influence in the closing years of the 19th century and especially in the years leading up to World War I until its final collapse during World War I. But it did bring our orthodoxy in Galicia together, um, which was an important move. It did see some initial success, which was important. But perhaps even more so is its legacy. Its legacy is very important because uh, that, that, that became ultimately its success because it was the pioneer. It was the ultimate pioneer. All successive orthodox political organizations which followed all orthodox politics which followed in its footsteps down to this very day uh, sees Machzik uh, as a pioneer and is influenced by its infrastructure and its and its uh, and in 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 its uh, in the way the way it was formed and and, and executed, uh, including to a lesser extent even Agudis Yisro. Uh, even though Sans and Bells opposed the Agudis Yisrael in interwar Poland, but definitely Agudis Yisrael was influenced by it. What's another interesting side note is that Jewish communities of expat Galicianer Jews who migrated, immigrated to other parts of Europe, when they established Galicia communities, they didn't call it Galicia or Anshe Galicia or Yaitse Galicia. They didn't say that. Very, very often they called their shul and their kahal, their community, Machzike Hadas. Uh, so that's another uh, real legacy. In London, Vienna, Antwerp, Manchester, I think there's several other cities around the world that uh, Jews of Galician origin have retained the Machzike Hadas name. Of course, what's most interesting, interestingly enough, in the late 1970s, uh, Bells, the Bells community in Israel terminated its affiliation with the Eid Haredes and they established their own independent community, their own independent rabbinical court and kashra supervision. So, late 1970, 1977, 1978, 1979, it's exactly a century following the original founding of Mechziki Hadas, and the current Belzerov appropriately names the new Bells community and Bezdin and Kashras Mechziki Hadas. So it lives on in Bells as well, who were the original founders, so it comes really full circle. So this was uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, and my upcoming trip to the United States in at the end of July. Um, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites uh, on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.